Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Hey, we're going to start a new series today, and I'm going to get right in it, um, titled uh, Into the Deep being overwhelmed by worship. I'm convinced that most of us don't live the life that we are called to live because we don't worship as we're called to worship. And so I want to spend some time discussing that worship, as we know first, is an, is, is an expression of reverence towards God and adoration towards God. But it isn't something that we do as an activity or an event. It's not something that we plan pre-service. This is our worship, and then we're going to do something else. And then reserve that time only for the short amount of time we're at church, but should in fact be a lifestyle of worship for us. We should live a lifestyle of reverence and adoration before God. Amen? And so I want to talk to you about that, and we're going to talk about that over the next four weeks, because I want, I want to build our heart for worship, not just singing. One of the easiest ways to determine if a person is a person of true worship or whether it's event-driven is that they prefer and boldly proclaim a preference in regard to a specific kind of singing. When I worship, I like to do such and such. Now, a lot of that's genre-related. A lot of that's age-specific. But let me tell you, I don't care if it's a song that was written yesterday or 2,000 years ago. If it's declaring the biblical truth of who God is, that should be an opportunity for worship for us. Amen? And so we're going to talk about that today. And I'm going to start by telling you that I realized my worship lacked based on or originating in a conversation that I originally had with Pastor Rick some 10, 15 years ago. As many of you know, I came to salvation. And when I came to salvation, man, it's like God just set me on fire. Uh, and my whole life changed. In that life change, I began to pursue God with everything that I thought I was I could possibly pursue God in. I started reading my word. I attended a local fellowship and attended it faithfully. I was a person of prayer. I still am those things, I believe. Uh, but I got to a place within a couple of years that I was frustrated because I wasn't growing at the rate I thought I should grow. And so I went to Pastor Rick, who, as you, many of you know, is, was my mentor at the time and still is to a large degree. And I told him, I said, man, I am frustrated. He said, boy, what's the matter? And I said, it doesn't matter how deep I try to go in regard to what I can know of God. I feel like I just, no matter how hard I swim, no matter how deep I go, at the end of it all, I end up popping back up to the top and make no forward progress at all. So I just, I'm struggling. You guys ever had moments in your 
ministerial or not your ministerial life, but in your Christian walk where you just feel like you're just at a place where you can't get where you're going. You, you're trying, you're struggling, you're, you're taking every stroke you can take in anticipation and hope that you could break through whatever that barrier is to a place where you know God better than you've known God before. Man, I, I think probably most of us have been in that situation. And so I'm explaining this frustration, this I, I didn't understand why I was frustrated with it or even what it meant. And so I'm explaining this to Pastor Rick, and he looks at me in his profound wisdom is what I'm going to call it, because um, I don't want to say anything ugly. <laughs> he, said, he said, perhaps you should start swimming without your life jacket on. And, you know, it's those little short tugs that really hit you in the teeth. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean swimming with my life jacket on? He said, you're bouncing to the top because you're only willing to swim where you're comfortable, where you feel safe. And so we got to talking about that, and I realized he was right, that I was only willing to go as deep with the Lord as I was comfortable in going in regard to what it would cost me. And I realized in that conversation, actually it took me quite a little few months ingesting that conversation to come to a place where I realized that my, my growth stopped or slowed because my worship slowed because I wasn't willing to go deep into my worship and give myself to God according to the way that he gave himself to me. And if we come to a place where we recognize that God deserves to be reverenced, that means respected to the point of obedience, and we adore him, pour our life out to him, I think we'll see ourselves, all of us, break through the barrier of what we think is worship right now and move from the activity of worship, from the event of worship, to a lifestyle of worship. Because the fact of the matter is, as I hope to prove today, God is everywhere we are. And if God is everywhere we are and he's proven to be everything his word says that he is, then we should never exit from our place of worship. We should be in the deep worshipers. And so I'm going to ask you over the next four weeks, take your life jacket off. To move past your level of comfortability and pursue God according to what you know of God. And I'm going to start that conversation today with a sermon titled, Worship is Revelatory. That means that we worship based on the revelation we've been given. The more that I know of God, the more I want to know of God. And so God reveals himself to us. It's the reason why I pray the prayer that I pray out of Ephesians 1, verse 17, actually 16 and 17, says this, Dude, I do not cease giving thanks for you. This is Paul praying for the Ephesian church. While making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So he wants to give you wisdom and revelation. He wants to reveal himself in the knowledge of him. He wants to give you wisdom and revelation so that our knowledge of him 
may increase. And that should be all of our prayer. It's the reason why before I preach this, before I study, before I do anything in regard to my day or whatever, I start with today, Lord, or while I'm studying, Lord, or while I'm preaching, Lord, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better, so that in knowing you better, we might get that revelation and apply it to our life in worship. Amen? And so it is revelatory. I worship at the level I understand God, that I know God, that I trust the Word of God. And so I want to talk to you about that today. What has God revealed Himself to be in regard to us and in regard to Himself? And I'm going to teach today out of Exodus, primarily, out of Exodus 34, 5 through 8. And so I'll give you a second to turn there. But let me say this, Acts 17, 27, while you're turning there, that they, Acts 17, 27 says, if you seek God, you can find him. It says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. When we worship, I want us to understand that if we'll just grope for him, we will find him. Where we search after him, we will find him. Where we worship him, we will find him. Where we pray to him, we will find him. Where we sacrifice ourselves, we will find him. Because the fact of the matter, according to this text, he's not that far from us anyway. Amen? And so Exodus 34 reads like this, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Let me stop right there because I'm not actually teaching on this piece other than to say this. God took the action to move to Moses. God took the action to move to you. He descended in a cloud to show himself to Moses. And he's done the same thing for you. I'm going to prove to you in Scripture that God did not allow, did not just leave you to your own devices. He provokes us by the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to acknowledge and recognize and walk in who he's called us to be based on who he is. And so he comes down to the mountain, and it says this, Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. So what I'm about to tell you isn't Moses' revelation of God. This is God showing Moses who he is so that Moses can have revelation. And he says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Amen. All right, so I got three things I want to say, and I believe this text says three things. Well, it says a bunch of things, but three things primarily in regard to worship. 
how God revealed himself so that we may be people of worship. Here's the first one. Revelation of God's compassion and grace should lead us to worship. As God reveals to us that he is compassionate and graceful, we should be led to worship. I want your mind to go crazy. I want your imagination to explode as I'm discussing the revelation of God. There's some writer, I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about worship, and he says, in our, in our worship, we should imagine the greatness of God. We should explore beyond our own ability to perceive and just release our imagination to how beautiful, magnificent, compassionate, and grace-filled God is. And that's what I want you to do today. I'm going to give you some examples, but let me tell you, I don't have the words to tell you how compassionate and how graceful God is. My finite mind can't do it. But you know what I can do? I can imagine things about God based on the Word of God that my finite mind doesn't have the ability to articulate. And you can do the same thing. As we sit back and release our imaginations to God, we can imagine far more than we can articulate. Now, don't let your imagination exceed the Word of God, but you should be at a place or get to a place where you release yourself completely in your imagination according to the Word of God. I want you to be overwhelmed is what I'm saying well beyond what you think you know or what you can articulate because God is far beyond what you know and what you can articulate. And so he says that he is compassionate and gracious in verse 6. He said, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. What does this mean? That God is compassionate. We know that there is a God. Let me start with that. The Bible says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, those things we can't see, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the Bible tells us that we know inherently from the time of our birth and ability to acknowledge it that there has to be something bigger. It's the reason why you go into the darkest, deepest parts of the jungle and they're worshiping something. They recognize that something created everything. But we have a problem. We denied that which we inherently know. It's, it's necessary or it seems necessary to man to be self-dependent. But can I tell you, you're not self-dependent. You can't be self-dependent because you can't exist unless, we, unless there is a God, and that God deserves to be acknowledged. But the fact of the matter is we deny that which we know. Romans one twenty one, which is, of course, the next text, says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The Bible says, our foolish hearts were darkened. So what, what does that mean? 
It means we had no ability to perceive who God was. We knew that God existed. We denied him, and our hearts became dark and became hardened. But he didn't leave our hearts darkened. Instead, he showed compassion on us because he is compassionate. That is, he is merciful to the point of action. Compassion is mercy in action. I can have mercy on you. I can be, oh, man. But if I don't work out that mercy in an, in an action, then I've not really benefited you. And that action is compassion. God made action on our behalf because the Bible says he is compassionate. Now, if he worked that out in us, if he showed us compassion, how did he show us compassion? He showed us compassion by extending grace to us, by favor we don't deserve. And I'm, I'm talking specifically in regard to our salvation, but literally everything that God gave us, everything that's ever been placed in our hand or upon us is a grace from God a thing we didn't deserve, including our own life. The breath in our lungs is a grace from God. The strength I have to be able to work is a grace from God. The ability to think is a grace from God. My grandchildren are a grace from God. The food on my table is a grace from God. Literally, because we deserve death according to the word of God, anything that isn't death is the act of compassion played out in grace. Everybody okay? This is the God that we serve. He didn't even have to. He could have just killed us. He created us. We dismissed him. Our hearts became darkened because he has creative license over anything that he creates, as all of us do. He, he could have determined to destroy it and not be answerable to anyone. But he decided not to do that. Instead, to extend grace to us. You know why? Because he's a loving God. And so he provokes us in that grace to himself. John 6, 44, no one can come to me, this is Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him on the last day. We have no ability to save ourselves because we're darkened in our understanding. Because according to Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our trespasses. And as dead in our trespasses, we don't have the ability to move ourselves out of that state of darkness. We require that God provoke us, that he move us out of the state of death, according to Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses. Let me tell you, when a person dies physically, they can no longer respond to stimuli. But they're just, they can't do anything except for one thing. Let me tell you, there's only one thing a human can do once it's dead, or any living creature once it's dead. And that is move from one state of decomposition to a greater state of decomposition. To a greater state of decomposition until they no longer exist. The same is true in our spiritual life where we were dead, dead in our trespasses, had we been left dead in our trespasses, the only thing we would have been capable of doing is becoming more, more corrupt, followed by a state of greater corruption, followed by a state of greater corruption, which you can see evidenced in Romans chapter 1 if you go through that whole section. They, God released them, and then they did such and such, and God released them too, and then they did such and such, and then God released them too. 
as we fail in the in our sin, in our own death, we move to a greater level of decomposition. But God didn't determine to leave you in that state of decomposition. He determined to draw you out by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us compassion, and extend grace to us. Can somebody say amen? Remember, I've told you, I don't want you to just listen to me. I want you to imagine. I want you to draw word pictures in your head of a God sitting on a throne that doesn't need us, that determined to give everything for us so that we could be with him. If you could get your head around that, you'll have more things to do than you can get done in your life. That should draw us to worship, that I deserve death, that I was dead in my trespasses, that I was getting worse and worse and worse. But God, because he's compassionate and desires to take action, provided that action by extending grace to us. The question is, what is that grace to us? That grace to us is Jesus. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's provoked to extend grace through Jesus. I'm trying to be very linear here today because I want you to be able to grab a hold of this truth that worship can't just happen in this space. If worship for you only happens in this space, you're not a worshiper. You're a singer. But grace was extended to us in Jesus. We all know the text. We love the text. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does that mean? That means God, compassionate, was gracious, sent his son Jesus, so that anybody who accepts him will have eternal life with him. Why? Because he loves us. Oh, that's so good. I am grateful for a God that loves me. I believe I should reverence a God that does that. I believe I should uh, adore a God who is willing to do that to the point of obedience and complete outpouring of my life for the sake and the benefit of him and so that others may know him. You know, I heard Justin earlier pray. He goes, God, give us gloves to work, gloves for service to work, or something along those lines. Let us be about the Father's business because somebody else out there still is darkened in their understanding. Someone out there still hasn't been, hasn't accepted the grace that's been given them. Some people are out there still don't know Jesus. Amen. He did all of this, sent his son Jesus, had him crushed, had him blasphemed, had him pierced through, had him put to death, wrongfully judged, all of these things. And the Bible says, because God is so compassionate, I want you to get your head around this. This is the absolute most confusing verse in, in Scripture to me. Did all of that? And the Bible says in Isaiah 53, it pleased him to do it. It pleased God the Father to, to have all those things done to his son. Any of y'all got kids? Do you imagine such a thing happening to your own child? 
I think the last thing you would say is it would please you to do it. Except that God doesn't understand as we understand. More specifically, we don't understand as he understands. And in his understanding, his love for us was so great that if that was the only way he could be with us forever, that he was pleased to do it. Man, that ought to make us love God. That ought to make us worship outside of this space. That ought to draw us to worship. Amen? But he doesn't just say that. He continues, and point second point I'll make, revelation of God's loving kindness and forgiveness leads to worship. In verse 7a, he says, who keeps loving kindness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Loving kindness and forgiveness go hand in hand. To say God is loving kind means that he shows great care for us. The God of the universe, please hear me, the God of the universe desires to care for us when he doesn't have to. He could have remade us, but he desires to watch after us. He desires to <clears throat> release the full manifold of his grace upon us so that we can know him better, so that we can see him better, so that we can ultimately worship him and glorify him. That's the goal of God's loving kindness. is isn't just to pour himself out to us, but so that we might pour ourselves out to him. Because everything God does is for the, God's glory. And so how does, he, how does he take great care of us? Well, let me tell you, he, he provides for us. In Luke 12, 24, it says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom, no barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? I can remember, praise God, I haven't had to in a long time, but I can remember when my kids were little. And when I mean little, I mean four or five years old and due to some decisions I made on my own and I wasn't, I didn't know have a relationship with Jesus. I would lay awake at night as a grown man and weep, cry because I wasn't sure if I'd be able to pay the rent or provide food for my little girls. And I don't know how, except for that God is gracious and compassionate even when I didn't know him he still provided for us our kids never went hungry they never went without a roof on their head same thing when Angela and I got married it, it wasn't any better because of some bad decisions I made but God was always willing to provide for us and if you'll trust him he'll provide for you too 
Amen? Because you're more valuable than any other portion of creation. He used a raven, but let me tell you, you are the gem in God's creation. The G-E-M, not the J-I-M, of God's creation. You are the pinnacle of his creation. It is you that he decided to place his likeness in, and his spirit in, and he will take care of you. He takes care of us by strengthening us. 1 Corinthians one twenty five says, Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind, and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. The weakness of God, whatever that means, is still stronger than the strongest of men. Well, you don't know the fight I'm fighting. I don't know the fight you're fighting. I don't know the struggles that you have. I don't know the addictions you deal with or the family structure you're currently living in. I don't know who's speaking against you or who may be lying about you. But the fact of the matter is, if you belong to God because he's gracious and compassionate, he has a promise of taking care of us. And his strength becomes your strength. In Romans 8, 31, it says, if God is for us, then what? Who can stand against us? Man, if we could, if we could internalize that truth, and then worship God based on that truth. Give God reverence and adoration because he's not letting me go hungry. He's allowing all of my needs to be met. He is strengthening me, not according to my strength, but according to his strength. And man, let me tell you, that requires, that that, that should expect more than five or 15 minutes of worship a week from us. Because we know about God, we should worship God accordingly. But he doesn't just strengthen us, he protects us. He has protected his people from the very beginning. Let me read you a text, uh, an additional text out of Exodus. Moses is backed up against the Red Sea along with all the people. And in chapter 14, 13 and 14, People are freaking out. You know, the Egyptian army is coming against them. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. And can I just sit there for a second? What are we stressing about? If God is for us, who can be against us? And Moses, by revelation of God, goes out to the people and says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Not tomorrow, not next week, although he promises in addition to continue in keeping you. But you can expect God's provision for protection today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Let me tell you, this one cuts me. Greatest lesson that I've ever learned, and probably one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned, and probably one of the greater lessons many of us could still learn, is that the Lord fights for me while I keep silent. 
I trust the provisional hand of God to the degree that I don't have to ensure everybody knows my side of the story. When we get mad, when we get frustrated, when we get aggravated, we feel like we should defend ourselves. Well, they need to know what I'm going through. They need to know what so-and-so did to me. No, they don't. Let me tell you, they're not near the enemy the Egyptians are. And God says, don't fear, don't worry about them. You're not going to see them again. Right now, I just need you to be quiet and let me take care of it. Because he will. And because he will, he deserves again. I know I'm a broken record, but it's literally the thesis statement for this whole lesson. We should be people of worship. Amen? Because he is so good. Hebrews 13.6 says, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I know people struggle. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to repeat after me. I will not be afraid. And instead of being afraid, worship. Expect God to be everything that God says he'll be and walk away from it. Be silent. That's good. He shows his great care. I told you they're hand in hand. His caring he shows that caring primarily, though, in his forgiveness. We might immediately ask, why do I need forgiveness? I have people, before I got saved, man, Cubic, you're awesome. You're great. Because of some achievements I'd made or whatever, somebody was always propping us up. And we hear the same thing today, even in the realm of the church. You're awesome. God loves you, blah, 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 blah. But you need to be forgiven. Let me tell you, if all they ever hear is God loves you, and then 50 sermons down the road, the pastor decides he's going to say you need to be forgiven, the expected response would be, why do I need to be forgiven? God loves me. I'm awesome. If I'm awesome and I've followed the 10 ways to a better me, what do I need God for? We all need God. Amen? But he has promised to forgive us. That's why we need forgiveness because we have all sinned. None of us deserve to be in relationship with God. But remember, through Christ Jesus, he extended compassion and grace to us. And so he extends grace to us, even though the Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. In 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man, I got to tell you, I'm convicted there, but I am also uplifted there. Let me tell you why. I'm convicted there because all of sin and falling short of the glory of God caused me to filter my life through where I am and what I'm doing and how it stands contrary to what God expects of me and should cause me to live a life of repentance. But here's the thing. I know Pastor Rick is saved. I'm confident. I've watched his fruit 15 years. 
And so I'm encouraged because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but he still forgave that guy. And if he forgave that guy, he's willing to forgive me. That's why forgiveness is so important, because we don't deserve that which we've got. But God, being compassionate and gracious, gave it to us anyway, and he gave it to us even though we deserved death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but... Everybody say, but. Man, I love those phrases in the Scripture. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You deserve death, but God is compassionate, gracious. God takes care of us, and he is forgiving. So even though you deserve death through Christ Jesus, he's not going to give that to you. Instead, he's going to give you eternal life through Christ Jesus. And when that happens, we're redeemed, we're justified, and we're washed clean. It means we no longer belong to the enemy. God bought us back. We are justified. We no longer have any charges held against us. And we are washed clean of the sin that was in our life. The Holy Spirit washes us clean. Amen? As we make a declaration of the truth. And that declaration of the truth is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how justification, redemption, and being washed clean happens. Amen? But here's the thing, and it's the last thing I'll say. Revelation of God's justice should lead us to worship too. It says here in Exodus 7b, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to third and fourth generations. He will punish because he is perfectly moral and he's perfectly fair. If he's perfectly moral and perfectly fair, two things have to be true. One, he can't tell a lie. And he's going to judge you perfectly because he's not a liar based on your action, not his attitude towards you. You know what I, I, I love about God? He doesn't treat me like people. People look at me and they build an assumption of who I am and they judge me according to what they think I am. God judges you according to who you believe in and who you've declared as Lord. He has to. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, because God is perfectly moral and He says He'll forgive those who call on Him. And because He's perfectly the perfect judge, you can expect that you will be judged perfectly according to the righteousness of God or not. Amen. This is the hope. This is the this is the reason why we should just we should pour ourselves out before God in worship, not just here. The first, the last verse says, Moses made haste to bow low, low before the earth and worship. So this is what happens. Moses, God tells Moses all this stuff. 
And let me tell you, it's not an inclusive list of how awesome God is. So he just shows him a portion of his glory. And Moses' response is what our response should be. It didn't say Moses just kind of slowly or eventually fell down and worshiped the Lord. It said he made haste to bow low and worship. Amen? That should be our response too. We did two songs at the beginning of this service because I wanted to do the third one at the end. Because I think when God reveals himself to us, and he has through his word this morning, we should be like Moses and make haste and bow low.